Hey, Clinical Pearl listeners, Happy New Year. We're back, and we're hitting the ground running. In this episode, we're going to cover the January 2019 expert review on peripartum cardiomyopathy. In 1997, three agencies helped to define peripartum cardiomyopathy. That was the National Institute of Health, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, and the Office of Rare Diseases. These defined the condition as a development of cardiac failure in the last month of pregnancy or within five months after delivery. Additionally, other criteria included an absence of other identifiable causes for the cardiac failure, absence of recognizable heart disease before the last month of pregnancy, and left ventricular dysfunction demonstrated by echocardiographic criteria. The final true incidence of peripartum cardiomyopathy is hard to track for a variety of reasons. However, it is estimated that the incidence of the condition in the U.S. has actually increased from one in about 4,000 births in the early 1990s to about one in 2,200 births in the mid-2000s. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this increase. One is, of course, increased awareness. Second is increased diagnostic criteria or stricter criteria. And then third, of course, course, is increased access to echo. All right, now, before we get into the potential causes, diagnosis, and of course, workup, let's remind ourselves of the normal physiological changes that happen during pregnancy. Now, pregnancy-induced hypervolemia is a necessary part of pregnancy in order to meet the demands of a growing uterus, growing fetus, and of course, to enable the mother to function normally. Now, this is accomplished by a 30 to 50% increase in cardiac output. Remember that at least half of that total rise in cardiac output during pregnancy actually happens as early as eight weeks. Also, mean blood pressure naders or drops at about 16 to 20 weeks. So these changes actually persist into the third trimester. Now, because of the reduction in peripheral vascular resistance, stroke volume becomes augmented and it increases from early pregnancy until around 16 weeks, after which it kind of plateaus along with cardiac output. Now, despite these dramatic hemodynamic changes, the intrinsic left ventricular contractility actually doesn't change much. However, the mass of the ventricles does change. Normal pregnancy is associated with increased left ventricular physical mass. More specifically, there's a significant increase in left ventricular mass that's proportional to maternal size. And it's not just the ventricles. The cardiac atria have a similar increase in mass. Such cardiac remodeling is a normal physiological response. And some, but not all, suggest that these changes resolve by about three months postpartum. Okay, now we have to give some quick clinical pearls here because there are some very important associated conditions that could also be considered flags for the condition. The first is advanced maternal age. Now, although peripartum cardiomyopathy can affect women of all age groups, more than half of the cases are in women who are older than 30 years of age. Actually, the incidence is tenfold higher in women that are 40 compared to women who are 20 years old or younger. The second factor that's associated with it is race. Black race is yet another factor strongly associated for the development of peripartum cardiomyopathy. 
The third major flag that's associated with peripartum cardiomyopathy is pregnancy-associated hypertension, which strongly predisposes a patient to the development of this condition postpartum. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As for potential etiologies, well, we're down to the accepted two-hit theory, but we'll get to that in a minute. The oldest theory of peripartum cardiomyopathy in terms of causality is the failed stress response of pregnancy. Now, in this condition, the mother's heart is simply overwhelmed by the normal physiological changes that occur in pregnancy. Other studies have linked viral myocarditis to condition, and there's also a theory that this is actually an immune response in reaction to the fetal genetic information. Now, in this theory, fetal stem cells or myocytes are actually embedded in the maternal heart, recognized as foreign, and then the resulting immune responses causes maternal cardiac injury. All right, now before we get into this two-hit theory, let's review two important proteins, messengers actually, that can play a role here. The first is the soluble vascular endothelial growth factor called soluble FMS-like tyrosine kinase 1. Now you may have heard that before because that same molecule is also tied to the development of preeclampsia. Now this is an anti-angiogenic molecule. Now when this is given to mice, it can actually result in peripartum cardiomyopathy. Now this condition has actually been reversed with infusions of vascular endothelial growth factor and bromocryptine. So that's a clinical pearl. If you can reverse it with bromocryptine, that implies that prolactin levels may have a role here in its causation. That's why women with peripartum cardiomyopathy are actually advised not to breastfeed. All right, so what does we do with all this information? What does this mean? Well, now let's talk about this two-hit theory hypothesis for the causation of the condition. The current theory regarding the pathophysiology of peripartum cardiomyopathy is that of a two-hit hypothesis. So in this setting, peripartum cardiomyopathy affects genetically susceptible women who have one of several gene mutations that makes the condition much more likely. Now remember that pregnancy at term is further characterized by increased secretion of prolactin from the maternal pituitary. At the same time, the placenta secretes high levels of the anti-angiogenic molecule, that tyrosine kinase 1 that we just discussed. Additionally, prolactin acts to cause myocardial damage with clinically apparent ventricular dysfunction. Now, this is made worse by secretion of high levels of the vascular endothelial growth factor inhibitory molecule that's at tyrosine kinase 1. You put all of this together and the resulting cardiac dysfunction leads to peripartum cardiomyopathy. Okay, so what is this two-hit theory again? Well, the first is that the woman has to have the genetic susceptibility to the condition. And then the second is a combination of neuroendocrine slash vascular responses. First, to the soluble-like tyrosine kinase 1, and then to even prolactin secretion, both of which can affect myocardial contractility. 
Because there's a lot of information coming at us really quick, I want to present the clinical presentation of this condition. And then in our next session, which will be part two, we're going to cover the diagnosis, management, and prognosis of peripartum cardiomyopathy. But first, let's get into the clinical presentation. The woman with peripartum cardiomyopathy typically presents with symptoms of congestive heart failure in late pregnancy, remember within the last month of pregnancy, or in the early weeks of the postpartum period. Common symptoms are dyspnea on exertion, orthopnea, cough, fatigue, abdominal discomfort, and peripheral edema. The most frequent clinical findings are attributed to congestive heart failure and its severity, tachypnea, tachycardia, and even Rawls and other evidence for pulmonary edema predominate and there is usually increased jugular venous pressure. All right, here's your clinical pearl. Transthoracic echo is diagnostic. The standard examination usually shows left ventricular dilation and systolic dysfunction. There's also right ventricular and biatrial enlargement. There's also mitral tricuspid regurg and pulmonary hypertension. All right, guys, that wraps up our intro or part one to peripartum cardiomyopathy. In the next session, we're going to cover the clinical investigation or the workup and, of course, management and prognosis. We'll see you next time for part two of peripartum cardiomyopathy.